Welcome back to the Business of Architecture and Design podcast. We'd like to wish a very happy new year to all our listeners, and we're delighted to tell you that this year we'll have a whole new lineup of acclaimed practice leaders and experts ready to share their journeys through the business of architecture. Well, it is very difficult, and there are different challenges that the large practices have versus the small practices. The small practices, especially now which I'm doing, the residential buildings, the biggest issue is that a lot of people who are half qualified or quarter qualified are a huge problem to us there because they can do it for a lot less money, they don't have the PI insurance, they don't have the registration, they don't have to do any of that. So these are the biggest challenges for small practices. This time, the Business of Architecture and Design brings you a bonus episode hosted by Leonie Lorimer, National Practice Leader of GHD Woodhead. Leone is a well-known industry leader with three decades at the top of major architectural practices. She is a role model for women in executive leadership in architecture. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralizes your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. For this special episode of the series, Leonie talks to Argie Sterling, the principal of Sterling Architects and the first female vice president of the Association of Consulting Architects Australia. Having trained in both the former Czechoslovakia and Australia, Argie has run her own successful practice in Sydney's eastern suburbs for 20 years. And now, over to Leonie. Argie Sterling is a director of Sterling Architects, National Vice President and New South Wales ACT President of the Association of Consulting Architects, or ACA. Argy has over 30 years' experience and has run her own practice in eastern Sydney for almost 20 years. We're delighted to have Argy Sterling here with us in the studio. Thank you for having me. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about your your background, um, where you were born, uh, what led you into architecture, perhaps where you graduated and how you started work? I was actually born in what used to be known as Czechoslovakia. It's now known as Slovakia in Bratislava. I was grappling with the thought, if I should mention it or not, that I'm an only child of Holocaust survivors. But then I made a decision that it's important because the person I am became of the experiences of my parents. Both my parents lost their entire families and, and all their material possessions in the Second World War. The only thing that was left for them was their knowledge. So hence, it was extremely important to push the knowledge and learning from the very early childhood. So I grew up in the trilingual home. As you can hear, I've got an accent, non-distinct because of the trilingual upbringing. Besides the school, it was important I attended a music school. I did piano and I did a bit of a cello playing. So hence the music plays an extremely important part in my life. From the very early age, it was my dream to come to Australia. So my entire education was based on that. As a, as a child, I dreamed of being a stage designer, 
but my parents were trying to be a little bit more practical and they saw that Perhaps architecture is something that may lead to it later on in life. Needless to say that I totally fell in love with architecture and I never tried to be a stage designer. So I studied at the university in Bratislava. I did architecture, which is a five-year course. I did two and a half years of it, after which the opportunity arose to come to Australia. And then I grabbed it with two hands and ran. I arrived in Australia, not speaking English, prepared to work and do whatever was needed. So my first job actually was, I walked into an office three days after arrival. He was a Hungarian architect. He interviewed me. He realized I can't speak English, but I had some drawings to show and he was happy to hire me. He opened his drawer, gave me all his tools and said, sit down and do some work, which was fine. And I started to work. And after a few days, he said to me, said, you're doing such a good job. Do you think you can design a block of units? I said, of course I can. I was quite confident. The first problem came, which is my biggest challenge, was that I didn't realize that the sun comes, goes from east to west via north and not via south. So hence the whole project was wrong and it had to be turned around. So soon after my arrival, I met my husband. We got married. We had three children. But my passion for completing my degree never left me. So by hook or crook, I was going to finish my university degree, which I did at UTS. That was with the help of my mother, my children and my husband, who did everything around me to let me be able to study and work at the same time. You met your husband, you uh, had some children. Did you keep working through those early years? Yes, I did. And that was, that was just due because my mother lived with us. My father passed away when I was 16, so my mother came with, us to, came with me to Australia. And, and I, found it, I thought it was my responsibility to look after her, so she lived with us, which was amazing for various reasons. But one of them was that she was running the household and I was capable to go to work and take on responsibilities. Now, Augie, you're a very passionate person. You're passionate about your work, you're passionate about your family, so passionate that you only sleep five hours a night. How do you find the balance between work and family? So when the children were small, I used to work in North Sydney. And when my son was born, I didn't go back to work there because I thought that if there is a problem, I can't get to North Sydney in time. I lived in Coogee at the time. I found myself a local firm to work here. And when my employer found out that I'm back to work, they said, come to work, come back to us. Here is a book of, I don't know, 50 cab vouchers. And whenever there's a problem, hop into a cab and go home and look after the baby, which was an amazing offer. I never had to do it. I went back and worked there for another three years until I had the second lot, which were twins. So I used to start work at seven o'clock in the morning mostly so I can get home early enough in the afternoon to spend time with the children. I found it, you know, it's one thing that my mother was there who didn't speak English and it and it gave them a hard time because they went to school and the teacher said, well, not, your children don't know any of the poems, they don't know any of the stories, they don't know the animals. So of course not because my mother read Hungarian stories to them. So it was important that I spend physically myself time with them. So what is the role of an employer in enabling women to be able to achieve that work-life balance and, in fact, 
men as well. I, th- I think that it's slowly getting a little bit better. In many marriages now, often the wife makes more money than the husband. And so the husbands become more of a house husband. And the more that is happening, the more other men will understand that the, the work-life balance is important. Also with the technology, which which is a, amazing that you can do, that you can work off-site and be at home and, you know, log on to the office, do your work on the computer, be available on the telephone. You can sit on the beach, the children in the water, and you can ring up, someone can ring you and you can, you can reply to the question. So with the modern technology, you know, if you embrace it, you can do a lot of things. So I quite enjoy it. And you can work on the same drawing to people currently. So it's not a problem. And that's, that's pretty important. What do you feel about the gender balance in our uh, profession of architecture and design? And do you see roadblocks uh, that prevent women from being better represented in our industry? I sometimes think that women are their own worst enemies because we don't support each other enough. I think that what is very important that when a woman gets to a certain position that she brings other girls with her which is very important, you know, so that we end up in the top positions and we, because all of us are capable, but a lot of them don't have the will to be there because they're more worried about their family. And what it is, it's important for us to mentor them to get to that position and to explain that, yes, you can do it and it's all possible. So we need to support them and teach them. And that, you know, for me, mentoring is like one of the most important things in the profession not just in this profession, but in any profession. So you went from not being able to speak any English on day one in an architecture practice, and you moved through to working for some large firms. So uh, can you tell us about that transition? Well, it was quite amazing since I started to work. The only thing I could ask for was that I'd like a ham sandwich for (laughs) lunch because I didn't know any English. But every lunchtime, being very young, it was you know fun for the boys. It was fun for me. There's not many girls in the offices. They would come around and they would help me to learn English. And within a year, I was reasonably fluent English speaker. And there were some interesting things. Like I worked in a big company. I arrived to work. I was told I can't wear jeans, can't wear pants, can't wear a denim skirt, just a normal skirt, which is fine. But the fashion was mini skirts. I arrived in a very, very short miniskirt. The office had 19 boys in it, and they put me on the drawing board right at the front of the office, which worked very well for the first half of the day because I was sitting and drawing. But the second half, I had to stand up. I wasn't going to work, to bend over the drawing board. So cap in hand, I went to the boss and I said, look, I'm so sorry, but I have to sit in the back corner. So they were all laughing. They knew what was going to come. They were just playing with me. So uh, tell us about um, when you were working in the larger scale practices and uh, what that was like, and then what led to the decision to set up your own business. The most exciting was my last job, which was for Gaia Design. I was there for seven years, which was a highly female-dominated environment. There was very few males there. And these women were extremely talented and I managed to learn a lot from them. And it was uh, commercial interiors. 
But by that time, the children were bigger, and I was able to moonlight, so I used to do some private work. I haven't finished my degree at that time yet, and I didn't really know that I need to have a PI insurance and all the other things. I was doing work. Looking back, it's quite scary, but at the time, it seemed quite normal. As a matter of fact, fact my one bigger lesson came in year 2000. I was doing... The second time, an extension to the same house that I did a few years before, and everything was fine. And the client kept up, said they have two hundred thousand dollars. I made the design, and they said, "What do you think we can do this? Do you think we can do that?" And I said, "Yes, yes. I, there's never anything a problem for me, except I never confirmed it in writing that yes, we can do all these extras, but it's going to cost extra." So, plus the year 2000 was the Olympics, there was not many workers, the price of steel went up by 20% at the time. So, when the tenders came back, they were much higher than the 200,000. So, hence they turned around, and I wasn't very good at sending out bills. They said, well, we're not going to pay you for the drawings because we can't use them, we can't build it, we can't afford it. The interesting thing is that I've known these people, and... Uh, the man was a jeweler, the woman was a lawyer, so I was going to get into arguments. And a few years later, I happened to walk into the jewelry shop, I needed to have a ring done. And he said, you know, all these years I feel, was feeling so guilty. Please let me give you a necklace. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, but what, what was the reason that you decided to take all these risks and strike out on your own? Well, at the time, I had enough work to keep me going for a year, really. And my first two grandsons were born four weeks apart. And it was a love at first sight. So I thought, no, I cannot possibly sit in the office all day, you know, when I could play with them. So because I only need about four or five hours sleep, I can work half the night and spend the daytime playing with the children. And it gave me a perfect work-life balance. So I started out working myself. Could you outline the structure of your practice? Yes. So I don't like anybody around me because I work such strange hours. So I sit in the office by myself, actually not even by myself because my husband insists on sitting there with me. He does all the paperwork. So he writes a few letters. He collects the money. He does. He checks that his English is immaculate. So he reads all the specifications and whatever. He's an electrical engineer, but he, after so many years being married to me, he understands quite a bit. So he does all the all the office work as such. But I have four off-site drafting people, plus one in China. So the, in China, they do all my 3D images and my Photoshops. And the other ones are, I have two architects and two draftsmen. Um, it was actually very difficult because one of the draftsmen, which I don't have anymore, she got married. And it was at the time when I was really busy. So I could tear my hair out because she was very reliable. She knew exactly what I want. So the way I run my office is that I talk to the clients, I do all the sketch plans, I send it out, and then and then they do all the working drawings. Sometimes I get the architect to deal with the clients. I also love traveling, so I spend five, six weeks in one go, once a year overseas. And then a few short holidays in Australia. So when I'm away for five, six weeks, the world doesn't stop. So I've got one of the architects who steps in for me and all my clients know him and then they refer to him. So that works very well for me. He sits in his office. I sit in mine, but 
the people know him and he'll come and he'll do the site inspections for me once a week and whatever needs to be done. So you're the very model of an innovative virtual company and you have employees of different genders and different ages. How do you plug that generation gap and what motivates younger people to come and join your very flexible and collaborative practice? Well, what it does is I have one father who's got young children. He's quite happy to work from home. What I like about the young people is they're technologically so much more advanced than I am, so I constantly can keep on learning from them. I might know more about building, but they know a lot more about technology. So when I need I need to do a 3D, like a shadow diagram, so I said, can you do it? Like, because I don't know how to do it, you know? So so it's it's fantastic. There is There is this exchange of knowledge, and it's very, very important. And how do they all interact with each other? And also, do they yeah. work solely for you or do they work for other people as well? They work for others as well. Um, one of them is solely for me, one of the architects. The others work for others as well. So it, it depends on my workload. Currently, I'm running nine projects. So sometimes I just think, well, why should I kill myself? You know, let them make some money too. When I take time out and don't work so many hours, I do the bits that I like to do and pass it on. And they they do interact partially, only when I'm away mostly, because I try to I try to give them ownership of the project. So it's very important when a person has an ownership of the project, they perform better. So you've done an extraordinary number of projects over a, a very long period of time in large scale, in-house, uh, in practices, on your own. Is there one particular thing that you can think of that was a major challenge that that you didn't you weren't able to meet or something that didn't work in your business that you had to learn from? As a, as a matter of fact, I've had one of those projects just right now, which was a commercial project, and uh, the client is not a not a client that owns the building, but it's a committee. And working with a committee, I have done it several times because I was working on several synagogues where you're working with a committee, and that's quite complicated. But this one was very complicated. There were three women directors, and oh my God, it was just so difficult. They couldn't agree amongst themselves, and every day they came back with a different idea what they want. So that was extremely difficult. That was I've had the other architect, he was doing all the drawings, um, and on the end, you know, the, one of the ladies, one of the directors had a son who is also an architect and she brought him in and then he was giving me a hard time and I said to him eventually, I said, you know what, why don't you just take ownership? I don't want any money. Here is Here are the drawings, take it. No, 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 I don't want it. But eventually that's exactly what happened. So I've lost money, I've lost time and I've lost faith in myself, you know, because it was like really very, very difficult. They wanted me to do things that I knew is impossible. Like, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a conservation heritage area and they wanted me to do the impossible. And I tried to say that you can't. Anyway, so I passed it all on to them and I don't know where the project is standing now, but it was an extremely disappointing experience. What about on the business side? Is there something that you tried to do as a business initiative that maybe didn't work out so well? Uh -huh. 
but that had nothing to do with architecture. I did. I was working in a stress field as a tenancy coordinator. It was straight after my twins were born. And I just could not believe it. You know, I was, all these tenants were coming in in their sports cars, lots of money. And I was a struggling little, I wasn't finished architect at the time yet. And uh, there was five of us in the office and one of the other guys, he was an, an architect, a Chinese guy. When we finished, he said, I'm going to buy myself a Chinese restaurant, which he did with his wife, who was a teacher. And they bought it in December and they closed it in middle of the year because they knew nothing about the restaurant business. So I decided I'm going to have a gift shop because you can make a lot more money than being an architect. So my girlfriend and I, we opened the gift shop. We opened in September and we closed in January. <laughs> so, yes, that was my one and only big initiative to make big money. So did you learn something from that experience that you then applied in your architecture business? Yes, stick to what you know. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe stick to what you love. Exactly. So of your own portfolio of work, what's your favourite project and why? It's my daughter's house, probably, because the whole design process was very special and uh, and it was also very deep and meaningful because I knew that I can't make a mistake because the client will stay with me forever. So I had to make sure that I do it the best I can. Um, I try to, try to make sure that my houses are sustainable and that I don't do buildings which are something that you walk past and you say, wow, it's more like a middle of the road, but it's a very livable space. It's extremely important for me that the spaces are very livable. And I think that in more ways than one, women are much better at it than men. You know, we, we think to the nth degree, you know, from the front door to the back door, and it's very important. So that their house has been standing for eight years. Yeah, I get a lot of people say, yes, the house is beautiful. All their friends think that the house is beautiful. But it's, it's extremely sustainable still, you know, it's got amazing natural ventilation, the house is cool in summer, warm in winter, so it does everything that it's meant to do and they're happy and so am I. So what do you think makes a great leader in an architecture practice? You have to be inclusive, you have to be decisive, you have to respect other people and you have to demonstrate that you have the reasonable knowledge you never, you never have to push anybody. You have to, first of all, create a, an environment where everybody feels comfortable. So many a times when I needed to hire someone, besides that there was a bit of bias because I finished UTS, so the UTS graduates always had a extra space in my heart. But it was I always looked at for a person who will fit the team was more important than somebody who was way out there. So there are so many challenges facing the architectural profession today. Do you think it's possible to future-proof an architectural business? It is very difficult, and there are different challenges that the large practices have versus the small practices. The small practices, especially now where, which I'm doing, the residential build, buildings, the biggest issue is that a lot of people who are half-qualified or quarter-qualified are a huge problem to us there because they they can do it for a lot less money, they don't have the PI insurance, they don't have the registration, they don't have to do any of that. So these are the biggest challenges 
for small practices. So are there things that you imagine that in five years' time you will be doing that you're not doing now? Yes, definitely. Um, I've been... I've been trying to teach myself to do in, to do drawings in 3D, and that's really what my KPR for myself is, that I'll be able to present all my designs to my clients in 3D and do walkthroughs because it's very important. It's good for their understanding. It's good, and it and it makes a good drawing, and, and that's something very important for me. Um, I do have offshore help, like my, I sent work off to China already, and... Uh, I'd be happier to do all the work in Australia, but currently it's financially not viable. Mm-hmm. What is it that you know now that you wish you knew when you were starting out? Hmm. If I would have started really to be more extroverted in the profession, I was extremely introverted. I was too busy with myself, with my family, with my practice, and I did not pay much attention of the, to the outside world, to the associations and, and, and everything that, are, that is happening around me. So I wish I would have been much more involved and more active, but I'm trying to make up for it now. <laughs> and what benefit would you have gained, do you think? It's not necessarily everything for me, and it's not all about me, but what I could have given other people. So sometimes, you know, giving is better than getting. So what advice would you give to a fledgling practice just starting out in Australia today? Don't despair, especially now that the economy is slightly harder than it was. Keep on doing it. Be positive, and eventually you will succeed. So it's a lot of hard work and you, there is a lot of ups and downs. There is successes and failures, but feed off your successes and learn from your failures. So what's been your greatest challenge in your career? I think probably the hardest thing was to, one of the reasons I kind of kept to myself was because I was constantly aware of my accent and it really bothered me. So like public speaking was just definitely not on. Um, at the institute, I had to present the Marian Maoni Prize, and that was so scary to stand on that stage and 500 people in the audience and walk up there and present the prize. Like for me, that was very scary. So, yeah, that that's that still is a challenge to to have the confidence to actually go and speak publicly, knowing that I have an accent, and that's pretty hard. And what have you learned from that? What have I learned? I should have done elocution lessons like, <laughs> like Margaret Thatcher when I came. So on the flip side then, what do you think has been your greatest success? My greatest success was my family and uh, probably what I, what I found was the most exciting was when I got a phone call from the Institute of Architects last year and someone said, we have nominated you for a fellowship. I'm like, what? So, so several times people said, apply, apply. And I'm like, ah, oh, no, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm, that's, I'm not doing it because of that. But someone obviously noticed and said, we have nominated you. And I got the fellowship and I'm extremely proud of it. And I'm trying to make sure that I don't disappoint anybody on the way. Just, we have a, a section five in five. 
I'll give you one word. And could you give us your off-the-cuff response as to what that word means to you? Success. Everybody has a different idea of what success means to them. Right? Some people think it's money. Some people think it's fame. To me, uh, happiness and satisfaction means everything that is success. Design. Design, right. Um, the design has to meet all the criteria, what they call the fit for purpose. You know, like to me that means nothing because everything has to be fit for purpose. Every line you draw for the, on the paper has to be fit for purpose. So the design is... And it's a very wide thing, the design, because it's not just houses that are designed. The chair, the table, the carpet, the colors, everything is designed. And you have to, and we as an architect, we've trained for it so we can do all of it. But we've given away a lot of it and we have to regain it. So design is extremely important. Opportunity. Every man makes his own opportunity. The opportunities are out there, you just have to see it and not step over it. Disruption. I think that the disruption is also an opportunity because there you have the, like there used to be the the faxes, now we do emails. So you, you know, like every, 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 what we call a disruption becomes an opportunity and we have to grab it with two hands and make it into opportunity and use it and, and it, be happy with it. Downtime. Downtime to me means music, reading, and chilling. <laughs> Can you tell me the little story you told me about what your grandchildren said yesterday? Yes. They said, Bobs, that's how they call me, said, you must talk about us. You must tell them that you started the practice so you can spend time with us. And that's a very important downtime for me. For the final segment of Argie Sterling's podcast, as the first female vice president and New South Wales and ACT chapter president of the Association of Consulting Architects, or ACA, she chats to Leonie about some of the initiatives the ACA has been working on. First of all, it tipped the gender balance because there are five state presidents and I'm one of the five, so that's 20%, which is already a good number. We have a new CEO, Angelina, who is also a female and she's, she's helping the gender balance. Um, basically, the ACA is amplifying its voice as a legitimate partner in architectural business. We are, we're trying to communicate the value of an architect, and this is this is like a, a major thing. I happened to be in a seminar which was run by Kirsten Orr and Byron Kinnard, which was very interesting. There would have been about eight tables of ten people each, and they put a big butcher's paper in the middle of the paper. Everyone got a pen, and we were all writing down what are the issues. Surprisingly, the overwhelming issue from every table came that it was the fees. And I cannot really agree on it. The fees are one thing, which is very nice, but I think the respect 
and the understanding what an architect does is a lot more important. If we regain our respect, then we're going to, the fees will follow it. And so this this is what we are doing. The ACA is running a forum. It's a future of architecture forum. And again, it's revolving around the fees, but I'd like it to be revolving around how to regain the respect because I think that's the most important thing. I also understand that you are putting in place initiatives that move ACA from being an organisation for a lot of separate individuals and practices into an organisation that is looking to build a, a community of people that work collaboratively together to enhance architecture as a profession. Could you just talk a little bit more about that? Indeed, indeed. So, so when I started with the ACA, the membership wasn't very big and everybody was like an island in himself and no man is an island, as you know. So it's pretty important to get these people to know each other to feed off each other, to meet and to understand because all of us have on or about the same problems and if one person solves the problem, well, the other one can benefit from it. Thanks for listening to this episode. Join us next time to hear a new guest guide us along their journey through the business of architecture. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review. Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.